Still no concession at home from President Donald Trump, despite a growing number of Republicans who now acknowledge it's time to move on. Where I have a real problem with what's going on is when a president starts alleging voter fraud without evidence of that. Just let the votes be counted. Fight it out in court. You know, we can have a Bush v. Gore 2000 if you all want to do this. President Trump running out of options as he suffers another defeat in court. The conduct of the president's legal team has been a national embarrassment. The president's legal cases continue to be thrown out for lack of evidence. It's time for the president's lawyers to present the facts, and then it's time for those facts to speak for themselves. His campaign and allies have lost in court at least 30 times. As heard previously on the Jay Doherty podcast, what I would advise Trump to do in this situation, I would just say to him, as far as we know, Biden won the election. There may be voter fraud. There may not be. Investigations are underway that will prove one way or another. There is always one winner and there is always one loser. And as far as we know, Biden is the winner and you are the loser. Therefore, you should let his team work with you to ensure the bigger goal, something much bigger than yourself, Mr. Trump, if you can imagine that. I am the chosen one. That the country's transition is essential and the smoothness of that transition is even more essential to the fabric of this entire nation's history. In the event, albeit unlikely event, that you were to be proven the winner of the election, then you kick Biden's team out and you continue your administration. Letting Biden's team work with Trump is a positive thing for the country and a sign of mutually healthy democracy, in my opinion. I don't think many conservatives would disagree with that, even if you flopped those names. We take this moment to remind you that what you perceive as reality is only inside your head and may not actually be what's out there. You are listening to the Jay Thornton Podcast. TJDP. The Jay Doherty Podcast, episode number 139, Distorted Reality. Today, the transition has officially begun. The president has authorized the General Services Administration, a bureaucratic name if I've ever heard one, to begin the transition process and allow the helpful and oh-so-welcome formalities of democracy's power transfer to ensue. All of this happens notwithstanding the flailing legal clouds and blatantly untrue rhetoric President Trump has chosen to create, but from where I stand, the future for a successful transition looks bright. Democrats consider the procedure's initiation a moderate victory, while some Republicans are just confused about what to do. They don't mind losing Trump, but they do mind losing his base. In between all of this, we explore the general importance of the Dow Jones gains as of recent, and we also examine what a Biden administration could look like, from cabinet picks to policy choices. Additionally, the future looks bright for a coronavirus vaccine. Competition among the healthcare companies is increasing, and it looks as if we are less than a month away from the first round's distribution, according to Pfizer. What progress has been made among the major companies? How logistically possible is it for entities to distribute the vaccine to millions of people? And how will the politicking in Washington affect the current efforts to mitigate COVID-19? We'll try to answer all that and more on episode number 139 of the Jay Doherty Podcast. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast. Here's Jay Doherty. And that is correct, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast. It's episode number 139, Saturday, November 28th, 2020, 5.15 p.m. As uh, we come on the air and broadcast and record for the podcast here, uh, j-doherty.com. Thank you very much for being here. 
Believe it or not, every single person that you heard in that opening montage there, in that very odd intro, <laughs> uh, they were all Republicans. Every single person in that intro, minus, of course, the reporters, were Republicans. Uh, you heard Adam Kinzinger first, and then you heard Governor uh, Chris Christie from New Jersey, and then you heard Senator Roy Blunt from Missouri. They are among a uh, somewhat minority of Republicans, actually, although the minority is uh, slowly growing, or actually probably will pick up shortly, who are just calling at minimum for the president to actually present more evidence and legitimately make a case in court for uh, all the voter fraud and the baseless voter fraud claims he's been pushing. Uh, and then some are just calling him for, calling for him to concede. I think right now it, the best thing is to concede. I think it's every recount that's been done so far has proven that Biden uh, won once again. And I don't really understand the concept of a recount by Trump's logic. I understand the concept of, of a recount minus Trump's logic. It's to certify and double-check the results, obviously. But if Trump is alleging that the entire thing is fraudulent, then what will recounting fraudulent votes do? I don't understand his logic there. Before we get into too deep into everything, I do want to uh, continue on our segment, the quote of the day. Today's quote of the day has a direct tie to episode number 139, uh, and it is as follows. Any man who has to say, I am the king, is no true king. That's from Tywin Lannister, who's a fictional character from HBO's Game of Thrones. I don't watch that show. I don't watch any TV, really. But uh, I saw that in a comment, and I'm going to give credit to the person who uh, commented it on uh, YouTube. Uh, and I just thought that was an interesting thing. It'll become clear why I think it's interesting very shortly. Before we get into... um. The voter fraud claims, I also want to point out a quick note. There was uh, an AWS outage, Amazon Web Services. You may have heard the news or experienced its impact this week when Amazon Web Services, one of the primary hosts and backers of the entire internet, experienced a quote-unquote prolonged outage. Not every company who was impacted listed Amazon as the entity at fault. Some said it was the external service provider or some sort of maintenance issues with another provider so as to not push the blame on Amazon, but not take responsibility for themselves. But the outage did temporarily wipe out a portion of the internet. According to The Verge's Jay Peters, Amazon's internet infrastructure service that is the backbone of many websites, apps, uh, and, websites and apps experienced a multi-hour outage on Wednesday that affected a large portion of the internet. The service has been nearly fully restored as of 4.18 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday morning, according to Amazon. It's now a Saturday, November 28th. And there were a lot of companies that were hit by this. Adobe was one of the first companies to experience its impact and one of the first to report uh, in all clear. They tweeted out at 3.22 a.m. on November 26, 2020, that all service impacted by the Amazon AWS outage yesterday are now fully resolved. Thanks for waiting while we work to get things back up and running. Uh, and then also, more the only, really the reason I mention this predominantly is, and we're not on Anchor, thank God, but um, Anchor, which is a pl podcast platform that was started uh, independently and then sold to Spotify, uh, I think a year ago or so, I experienced massive outages because Anchor uses, and not, no, not only Anchor, but Anchor predominantly, I think almost entirely uses Amazon Web Services. So every podcast, or a majority of the podcasts, I believe, that were distributed on Anchor, which are a lot, were temporarily down because uh, Amazon stores all of that data. Amazon is really the backbone of the internet. If Amazon and Google both simultaneously went down, the internet would not exist 
there would be lots of problems. The stock markets would probably crash. It's really amazing how the whole world, uh, the whole world's infrastructure predominantly hinges on two companies. But yeah, Amazon and, and Google. And uh, it's funny when these things go out there. You know, the thing is, there are, there are server outages. Every, I don't want to lollygag on this point for too long, but there are servers, servers and uh, companies that ha that own servers, and they go out all the time. And you just don't know about it because there's all this cloud computing stuff. And if one server goes out in one part of the country, then there's, you know, scripts and that sort of thing to forward it to another server. And then if that goes down, it forwards it to another server. And they're all in different regions of countries. There's tons of redundancy within Amazon. But apparently this was a more fatal and noticeable outage that occurred for some time. And uh, it was uh, eventually fixed, which is good. We now move on to really the story of the day and the week what I'm calling uh, the politically self-harming odd pattern of one Mr. Donald J. Trump. The recent actions of his administration are much less controversial than what he chooses to talk, tweet, or squawk about. Uh, and for two or three long weeks there, it was unclear, or maybe even more, it was unclear whether or not Trump would concede or not. And people were starting to really get anxious about the presidential transition of power. The media was hoping to capture Trump begrudgingly resisting the police escort that would walk him out of the White House. And there was a lot of internal party tension on both sides. We were sort of at the end of Trump's uh, phase last episode, uh, at least procedurally, because Trump continues to say that the election was fraudulent, that he did indeed win, which is, of course, untrue, or that Biden lost. But procedurally and action-wise, uh, his administration is actually going along with starting to go along with what would generally be considered the procedure of presidential transition. But there have been new developments from the oh-so-bureaucratically-titled General Services Administration. Emily Murphy is the head, or officially the administrator, of the GSA, and she is tasked, like all of her predecessors, with basically initiating the formalities of a presidential transition. Lisa Rain of the Washington Post writes that after 16 days teetering between her duty to President Trump, who she was appointed by, and the methodically unfolding reality that Joe Biden won the election, Emily Murphy declared the Democrat the apparent victor Monday in an unusually personal letter to him. Day after day, as her boss tried to subvert the election results with fraud claims and legal challenges, the embattled head of the General Services Administration held off on making what is usually a routine call after a presidential election. Miss Murphy is sort of the the like person that you go see after you win the lottery or win the election. <laughs> you go and see her and she gets all the details arranged for you to have to start your transition process or send you your lottery money. The administrator declares the apparent winner and the transition resources flow, writes Lisa Rain in the Washington Post. Murphy, a by-the-book expert in federal procurement policy, consulted with her senior staff and attorneys. The transition law dating to 1963 that was supposed to guide her in determining when a candidate has won, had little to offer in the current case, with the president refusing to concede and a Republican Party standing by him. Something that I don't think will last long because, well, it may because for political reasons, but I don't think the Republican Party legitimately likes Trump. There is a big difference that is starting to develop between pro-Trumpers and, pro and Republicans because there are a lot of Republicans that don't like Trump and there are a lot of pro-Trumps that don't like Republicans. So it's an interesting thing. Back to the GSA stuff that's been happening. You can read the full letter from uh, the administrator, Emily Murphy, uh, at j-dorty.com slash GSA 2020. 
And she writes that I have dedicated much of my adult life to public service and I have always strived to do what is right. Please know that I came to my decision independently, and that decision is, of course, to make certain post-election resources and services available to assist in the event of a presidential transition, as the letter writes. You can just hear the bureaucracy uh, (laughs) emanating through those words. She writes that I was never indirectly or directly pressured by any executive branch official, including those who work at the White House or GSA, with regard to the substance or timing of my decision. To be clear, I did not receive any direction to delay my determination. I did, however, receive threats online, by phone, and by mail directed at my safety, my family, my staff, and even my pets in an effort to coerce me into making this this determination prematurely. Even in the face of thousands of threats, I always remained committed to upholding the law. Contrary to media reports and insinuations, my decision was not made out of fear of favoritism. Instead, I strongly believe that the statute requires that the GSA administrator ascertain, not impose, the apparent uh, president-elect. She says, unfortunately, the statute provides no procedures or standards for this process, and of course, this process is a euphemism of President Trump's nonsense. So I looked to the precedent from prior elections involving legal challenges and complete counts. GSA does not dictate the outcome of legal disputes and recounts, nor does it determine whether such proceedings are reasonable or justified. These are issues that the Constitution, federal laws, and state laws leave to the election certification process and decisions by courts uh, of competent jurisdiction. That's an interesting point, because theoretically, uh, if that's the case, then the incumbent president could just keep starting lawsuits. And if the competent jurisdictions, quote-unquote, continue to dismiss the case, or to, or in one case, vote in the person's favor. I mean, it's an interesting thing. You can sort of drag it out just by uh, nature of the process. Although, I don't know, there may be a lot of uh, sort of rail guards up to protect uh, people from actually doing that. I would assume there, there would be some sort of thing. Uh, you cannot maintain power indefinitely just from continuing to sue people. But nonetheless, Ms. Murphy writes that, I do not think that an agency charged with improving federal procurement and property management should place itself above the constitutionally based election process. I strongly urge Congress to consider amendments to the act. And that's an interesting point. And actually, the amendments to the act, or at least more specific amendments to the act, or uh, changes in policy would make her job a lot easier. But no one would think that with uh, someone uh, unlike Donald J. Trump, You'd ever need amendments or details about what would happen if someone refuses to concede. The president's reaction to all of this, particularly about uh, Emily Murphy, was stated over Twitter when he, or some expert tweet writer, it doesn't sound like Trump, uh, but it came from his account. It read, I want to thank Emily Murphy at GSA for her steadfast dedication and loyalty to our country. She has been harassed, threatened, and abused, and I do not want that, uh, to see that happen to her, see this happen to her, her family, or employees of GSA. Our case strongly continues, all in caps. We will keep up the good fight, and I believe we will prevail. Nonetheless, in the best interest, or nevertheless, in the best interest of our country, I am recommending that Emily and her team do what needs to be done with regard to initial protocols, and have told my team to do the same. So I don't think that tweet was written by Trump. I think whoever wrote it was very smart, uh, at least from the legal side of Trump's campaign, because they did not use the word transition. They just used with regard to initial protocols. Again, the euphemisms never end. Uh, and uh, so that's sort of interesting. And Trump, I don't think, has ever said, I've told my team to do the same. Even though that does sound like sort of an elite thing to say, I don't think he's ever actually <laughs> actually said that. 
Those cordial words, in my opinion, do not sound at all like the president that I thought I knew. The statement, regardless of who told him to say it, is still a very good thing, though, as it, in my opinion, propels the transition in the right direction. And it looks as if, procedurally, the president is taking the advice of many smart people, that advice being to concede with the data we know now. While this isolated statement is absolutely a step in the right direction, the uh, aura did not last too long, as after <laughs> Trump tweeted a disputed 9-minute and 34-minute monologue of the estimable Tucker Carlson talking about voter fraud, he tweeted, and again, I know this is him because he has incorrect uh, comma placement and bad grammar, he says, What does GSA being allowed to preliminarily work with the Dems have to do with continuing to pursue our various cases on what will go down as the most corrupt election in American political history? We are moving full speed ahead. We will never concede to fake ballots and dominion. And of course, he forgot to put the uh, period inside the quotation marks, as he consistently does. In terms of time, the president uh, then went out and gave an odd one-minute press conference about the stock market, which I will talk about at great length shortly. He's getting way too much criticism for that, I must say. Uh, but continuing on the subject of voter fraud claims, in the next thing he did in timeline, the only reason I mentioned the... Uh, stock market is because that was the next thing he did in the course of time. The next thing Trump did in terms of time was, of course, uh, hold a virtual PR event with members of the military. And, uh, you know, the, the military members' sacrifice and Trump's holding of this event was drastically underreported by everyone. Uh, and I uh, think the military does not get enough credit whatsoever. So I uh, do have to say that it was a good thing that he he hosted that event. Uh, it's sort of a procedural thing that that happens every year, but I, I think the press did not report on it enough, so I'm giving a shout-out right here because it's the platform that I have, while much smaller than, of course, <laughs> the multi-million dollars uh, that are poured into CNN, Fox News, etc. So I just thought it was underreported, and I just wanted to say thank you very much to uh, everyone who sacrifices or sacrificed their life for this country. Uh, what was reported, though, in the aftermath of this virtual military event was when Trump had a very hostile interaction with a reporter about voter fraud. Well, that's a lot more grabby and headline and money-making and ratings-grabbing than uh, seeing Trump thank the military. The following clip, sorry, begins with Trump responding to a series of questions, and then Trump fires back and just goes all out, and he, you can just tell. He's so weak inside. He's so destroyed by the losses that he's taking from, you know, from just losing the election, he doesn't really know what to do with himself, so he just asserts his dominance and reverts back to the title of which he still does own and hold, although he is a lame duck, as uh, the politicians and the insiders call him. It was a rigged election. But sir, just, just to be clear, if the Electoral College votes for Joe Biden, will you concede? Well, if they do, they made a mistake, because this election was a fraud. Just so you understand, this election was a fraud. I mean, they have Biden beating Obama on Obama's vote in areas that mattered in terms of the election, in swing states. And yet he's losing to Obama all over the place. But he's beating Obama in swing states, which are the states that mattered for purposes of the election. So, no, I can't say that at all. I think it's a, it's a possibility. They're trying to, look, between you people, don't answer, don't talk to me that way. You're just a, you're just a lightweight. Don't talk to me that way. Don't talk to, I'm the president of the United States. Don't ever talk to the president that way. Whoa. All right, I'm going to go with another okay, question. Okay, so the reason uh, the quote of the day is what it is today, of course, the quote of the day is, any man who has to say, I am the king is no true king, is because of Trump's 
hostile reaction the first time, I believe the first time, uh, he's publicly said, Don't talk to me that way, I'm the President of the United States. I cannot take credit for that reference, though, because uh, I don't watch Game of Thrones or really any TV or movies. That quote is from uh, fictional character Tywin Lannister. But I did see the quote commented in CNN's capturing of the video uh, from user J-U-I-C-Y-B-L-I-I-I-I-I-I-I-I-N-G-E-R. That clip and the one that I'm soon to play was written with false statements, according to NBC News' Rebecca Shabbat, who wrote that uh, Trump falsely told reporters at the White House during a 35-minute question-and-answer session that he won the 2020 election by a quote-unquote tremendous amount. According to the NBC News election tracker, Biden has received more than 80 million votes and Trump has received 73.8 million votes. And by the way, I do want to make a quick correction. I think I said before that uh, the uh, thanks this event that I'm talking about was held on the day before Thanksgiving. It was actually held on the day of Thanksgiving. Uh, the article from NBC continues saying that he reiterated his baseless claims about the election being stolen from him because of fraudulent votes in key battleground states that Biden wound up winning. He also falsely said that it would be hard to concede because, you know, there's massive fraud, unquote. The president said, you're going to see things happen over the next week or two that are going to be shocking to people. Trump said that he plans to visit Georgia, likely on Saturday, and uh, which is today, and suggests that he plans to hold what would likely be some sort of campaign-style rally, which is ironic considering he's lost the election. So he's going to hold a campaign rally, <laughs> even though he lost the election. It's sort of like he's living in a time warp. You know how he sometimes talked about uh, Hillary Clinton during the uh, Biden when he was running against Biden, and now he's talking about uh, now he's going out and campaigning, even though he lost the election. Trump uh, also said that he does not want to say yet whether he plans to attend Biden's inauguration on January 20th. We'll see exactly what that happens and how that happens. Uh, however, contrary to the media's deepest wishes, Trump said that he would, without question, leave the White House if and when Biden is officially elected president by the Electoral College. Here is what he had to say in that same press conference. If, if the Electoral College does elect President-elect Joe Biden, are you not going to leave this building? Just so you, uh, certainly I will. Certainly I will. And you know that. Massive fraud has been found. Lie. We're like a third world country. What? Third world country? I thought you made America great again. And then we, what? You're at the end of your first term and you haven't made America great again? It's still a third world country? His campaign slogan, keep America great, but he calls it a third world country or he compares it to a third world country? It is funny how the media, I have to say, fetched out for Trump to sort of like make himself look bad and say, are you going to leave the building? And they, they, they want him, they, they, the media, you can tell for, for the purposes of ratings or whatever uh, they want to do, whether it's agenda driven or ratings driven, mostly the, most likely the latter, wants there to be some dramatic exit of Trump. And there will not be. I can 99% say that uh, with confidence, <laughs> not not 100, but 99, and I cannot say at all with confidence whether or not Trump will attend the, in the uh, Biden's inauguration. I hope he does. Mutually agreed upon transitions and just continuing with the uh, historic, tr like, just existence of this country would be a good thing, I think, for general population. It would look very weak on Trump to not attend the inauguration. Every president in history, I believe 
has acknowledged the uh, victor of the election, whether it's him, himself or potentially herself in the future. Uh, Trump also called into a news conference held by the infamous Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Uh, Rudolph William Lewis Giuliani, in which he made so many false claims that it would take longer than the press conference itself to debunk them, the chief of which being that uh, Trump said this. It was an election that we won easily. We won it by a lot. The Washington Post has a full breakdown of the many lies that he told during that press conference. It's probably, if I printed it out, it'd be like six pages. Uh, so if you want to go look at that, it has a four Pinocchio uh, on their rating scale, four Pinocchio uh, graphics. It's by Glenn Kessler. We'll have the link at the website, j-dorty.com slash 139. Uh, so the deeper and simpler meaning of all this election fraud claims and the nonsense, that's sort of what I've been trying to get after. I don't know what Trump's true intentions are. I don't think he really enjoys being president as much. Well, he, he enjoys being president for the attention, for the ability to market himself. He enjoys it for the ego boosting. If you want, like, there's no job, I don't think, that's more, uh, more of an ego booster than uh, that of the president of the United States. You fly in the best, you know, everyone says yes to you. You fly in the best planes. You you stay in the best parts of hotels, you, uh, I mean, you get full treatment, you get the limo wherever you want, the private jet, everyone, the whole streets, <laughs> all the streets get locked down whenever you go into a town, everything is made, you live in this very unworldly elite bubble, and uh, there's no better place for an egomaniac than uh, the Oval Office. Uh, but there is there are lots of uh, level-headed liberal people in the world that may disagree with what I'm about to say, but I honestly think that Trump knows deep down inside, or maybe even not deep down inside, that he lost the election, because so far as we know, he did. All the evidence says that. And he, I, I think, I would make the argument, at least as of right now, that he is pulling all of these voter fraud antics for publicity if and when he runs again in 2024, or when he tries to launch a media network to in some way compete against Vox and launch an own Trump, t Trump TV network that will do extremely well for the first maybe two years and then it'll sort of die off and there'll be uh, like 100,000 subscribers or something, which is not bad, but I think it'll gain a lot of popularity in the beginning because, you know, it's the trendy thing to do and then uh, as he's doing right now, the relevance will continue to fizzle. Sort of like Alex Jones. <laughs> There are a lot of people that uh, watched Alex Jones when he was on YouTube, and then he got banned. So that's sort of like Trump leaving the uh, Oval Office or the the uh, presidency as a whole. And then his relevance continues to fizzle, uh, except uh, uh, you know among the super fans who continue to go to info infowars.com, which I do not recommend, encourage, condone, or support. I do not think that uh, President Trump has any intention to desire or govern from the building that he's li been living in for the past four years. His true passion and skill, actually, is in marketing. And uh, I think there are lots of governing duties that get in the way of that desire in his current occupation. He is uh, doing all of this voter fraud nonsense. He's going on the networks. He's calling into Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer's press conference to gain and maintain supporters whether or not he wants to be president again or not. This, in my opinion, is a marketing effort to maintain his relevancy, even though it's sort of having the uh, inverse effect. On a more positive, but somewhat not positive note, 
In a break from the odd election news on Wednesday, the president came out to the press podium and delivered what I and others like to call a live tweet. He stood at the podium for about one minute and gave a very positive update about the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Here is what the president had to say. Well, thank you very much, and I just want to congratulate everybody. The stock market Dow Jones Industrial Average just hit 30,000, which is the highest in history. We've never broken 30,000, and that's just despite uh, everything that's taken place with the pandemic. I'm very uh, thrilled with what's happened on the vaccine front. That's been absolutely incredible. It's, uh, nothing like that has ever happened medically, and uh, I think people are acknowledging that, and it's having a big effect. But uh, the stock market's just broken 30,000. Never been broken, that number. That's a sacred number, 30,000. Nobody thought they'd ever see it. Uh, that's the ninth time since uh, the beginning of 2020. And it's the 48th time that we've broken records in during the Trump administration. And I just want to congratulate all the people within the administration that work so hard. And most importantly, I want to congratulate the people of our country because there are no people like you. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. All right. So then he walks out, doesn't take any questions. This was, I think, uh, the day or two before Thanksgiving. And uh, the media and many progressive Democrats after this speech uh, tend to criticize Trump or really any politician on either side uh, when they boast about stock market gains by essentially saying, and I'm quoting, I'm paraphrasing the, uh, crit the, the critics of people who, of politicians who boast about stock market gains, they say that, not all Americans own stocks, or the stock market is not an indicator of success for millions of Americans, therefore we shouldn't care about it. So I have, uh, I'm sort of a uh, love, I have a love-hate relationship with that statement. I think uh, to say that the stock market is completely irrelevant from, from all uh, life whatsoever, or all American success whatsoever, is just untrue because the majority of the country does have some interest in the stock market, whether it's directly through owning stocks or through 401k, which I'm going to talk about shortly. Uh, but also, uh, but there is also truth in that statement in that many people do not have ties to stock. Like um, about, I think, 48% of Americans do not have uh, ties, direct ties to the stock market, even though I would make the argument that 100% of Americans are impacted by the stock market in one way or another, um, or at least impacted by the entire economy. I mean, who isn't impacted by the economy unless you're, you know, living under a rock or something? But it is an interesting uh, idea to to examine because there are just recently, I think, almost a million people, like 700,000 people, applied for first-time unemployment uh, last week or the week before. So the economy is, you know, unemployment and what this coronavirus has done is definitely not in is is uh, definitely another and very more than worthwhile uh, fact to consider and set of facts to consider uh, beyond just the stock market. However, with that being said, in both of what Trump's statements said and in others, there seems to be this underlying notion that only the top 1% or only the top 10% of Americans have any role in the stock market when that is just simply not true. Uh, there are millions of Americans who have uh, 401ks invested in stock markets and in stocks and bonds. Uh, and if they are able, some Americans, regardless of their income, uh, if they are able, just invest some of their income in the stock market. And the markets do impact more than just the 1%. If the stock market only impacted the 1%, <laughs> then you wouldn't be hearing about it in the news. 
you would not be hearing about anything about it in the news. There wouldn't be entire uh, cable networks dedicated to specifically covering the stock market if it only impacted the 1%. And you wouldn't hear anything about it in the news, good or bad, at any point. Uh, so in my tangential efforts to sort of dispel the notion that the stock market is this elite entity with strict boundaries that block the proletariat from interacting with it, I found a study from the Pew Research Center which stated that 52% of Americans have some sort of direct connection to the stock market. And I make the argument that 100% of Americans have some sort of direct or indirect uh, connection to the stock market. The Pew Research Center study by Kim, Parner and, sorry, Kim Parker and Richard Fry say that uncertainty driven by the current coronavirus outbreak, and keep in mind this was written on March 25th, 2020, has caused the U.S. stock market to wipe away three years of gains in a matter of weeks. And this was reported back in March. Participation in the stock market varies considerably across demographic groups, but even among those with uh, annual family incomes of less than $35,000, about one in five have assets in the stock market. The shares increase as income rises, and among those with incomes above $100,000, 88% own stocks, either directly or indirectly. The amount of assets families hold in stocks also varies considerably by income. Among those with incomes less than $35,000, the median amount held is less than $10,000. For those at the higher end of the income scale, the median amount is more than $130,000. Families headed by white adults are more likely uh, than those headed by black or Hispanic adults to be invested in the stock market. 61% of non-Hispanic white households own some stock compared to with 31% of non-Hispanic black and 28% of Hispanic households. Median investments uh, vary here as well. Among uh, whites, the median is about $51,000. By comparison, the median for black families is $12,000, and for Hispanic, under $11,000. So there are a lot of differences, a lot of disparities, but the point is, we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars among lots of Americans, 52% plus uh, of Americans, who own and have some sort of direct connection to the stock market. And uh, I am completely in agreement with the notion that uh, the stock market is not the, the exclusive uh, determiner of success in America, because it is not at all. Uh, the stock market does only represent 52% of the nation. There is another 48% that do not have direct connections to the stock market. Uh, but I do think you cannot ignore the stock market at all, just like you can't ignore the uh, economic state of, of any one single group. I actually hold the belief that the economic success of a country is uh, determined upon how many people are out there stimulating the economy with their own money. And this is, this is maybe a backwards philosophy. If I'm incorrect, please let me know. 312-625-8492 is the show's phone number. Consumers or people who go out and spend money are, seem to always be, and this might be incorrect because they're very wide-ranging, but that's part of the reason I'm including them, is because consumers are often at either the top or, more often, the bottom end of the trickling that both Democrats and Republicans talk about when they forge legislative policy around economics. Sorry, first of all, the consumers spend money at stores. Those stores employ people, those people who are employees, and then the, the, people, the stores that employ people are owned by companies that are traded on the stock market. The people who uh, are the heads of companies on the stock market employ people. Those people go out and take the money that they earn from their job, which is headed by the people at the stock market, and they go out and buy stuff, you know, in the general public at those stores. And then those people, the you know, the stores employ people. And then there's this whole circle. 
It's, that, that's basically the economy. But you basically identifying the bottom of the trickle in the, the bare bottom, the person who gets the, the bare last step, the last part of the process in trickle-down economics, as Republicans call it, or, yeah, or the hypothetical trickle-down in what uh, Democrats call it. Not to mention the fact that there are many Americans that uh, have what I like to call indirect connections with the stock market. And again, this is why I say the stock market is not to be ignored or not to be just thrown out the window, because a good portion of Americans do have connections to the stock market. As I said, direct connections, 52% statistically, and I would argue that 100% have indirect connections by simply the way of their employer. And here's why. If someone works very hard for a massive company and makes even minimum wage or close to it, their job is often and unfortunately somehow in the hands of their boss's 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 boss who controls budgets and expenditures which are likely impacted in some way by the stock market assuming that company is publicly traded. If the stock market does well and shareholders of the company are confident in its direction, there is more money circulating in and out of the company, it's more demand, more need for supply and thus more demand for employment. Uh, if it is not doing well, though, there's less money being traded, less demand on behalf of the consumers and the traders, the excess of supply from the company, which will result in unemployment, and even more broadly, the stock market is driven by individual people, the people who some elites say have no control or connection to the stock market, and that's just not true. You saw a prime example of uh, when coronavirus hit and the stock market tanked. Obviously, there was no confidence in the stock market, there was a lot of instability, but uh, the instability was fed by a lack of people going out, like normal, regular people going out and stimulating the economy. The economy is completely built off the individual person in a, in a uh, capitalist free market society, both in terms of stimulating it by paying into it and being a uh, patron of it, and also employing people through it. And th that's a risk and reward system right there. Uh, and by contrast, when people are you know, out stimulating growth, of small, medium, and large businesses by simply patronizing them, the stock market does well. A flaw of capitalism, in my humble opinion, is that uh, Amazon did super well during the pandemic, but a small business across the street had to shut down, and that is not right. To quote uh, Andrew Yang, who quoted someone else who is an economist, you, uh, no one ever thought that capitalism would be eaten by its child, technology. To quote a well-phrased paragraph uh, that's a little bit less wise from Investopedia, a little bit more factual, they write that often consumers spend more during bull markets because they're making more from the effects of a strong economy and also feel wealthier when they see their portfolios rise in value. During bear markets, the economy is usually not doing as well and spending recedes. A simultaneous fall in stock values also creates fear for the loss of wealth and purchasing power as the value of investments contracts. End quote. Now, it doesn't even have to be bull or bear markets within an economy or within a stock market. It can be a bull or bear market literally with, within your employment. It could be, a, you know, with how much money you happen to make from your own small business, with, with how many customers are coming into your store, with how many people are patronizing your online business or whatever you do. Like if I have a good month on Fiverr, for example, which is what I do, uh, where I do voiceover stuff then that's a bull market. If I don't, that's a bear market, and I'm more motivated to go out and spend money if I make more money and less m motivated to spend money if I don't make as much money. It's pretty easy to uh, understand all of these implications when you really just think of it as a common sense thing and common sense trading, whether it's on the stock market or not. It's funny, though, how throughout all of this, 
the negative repercussions always, always, always trickle down to the workers. But the positive ones never do, contrary to what some Republicans may try to tell you. Have you ever heard a more confusing set of fiscally liberal and fiscally conservative ideas blended into one? Sorry for that tangent. Uh, We now return to the topic at hand, the stock market. The reason the stock market is doing well is not because the market loves or hates Trump or loves or hates Biden. It's because of Mr. Joe Biden's choice for Treasury Secretary of this fine country. The current holder of that office is one Mr. Steven Mnuchin. His successor, as named this week, will be Janet Yellen. Janet Yellen is an experienced insider if there ever was one. According to the New York Times, Paul Krugman, in an opinion column titled, quote, In Praise of Janet Yellen, the Economist, Miss Yellen, quote, won't just be the first woman to hold the job, she'll be the first person to have held all three of the uh, traditional top U.S. policy positions in economics, chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, chair of the Federal Reserve, and now Treasury Secretary. Needless to say, Wall Street loves what they know, and they know Janet Yellen. The reason the markets are soaring right now at the moment is because of her inside experience on Wall Street and with the stock markets, in addition to the fact that we are going into a holiday shopping season and going off my argument of what I just said, economies are stimulated by people, people going out to you know, buy things in stores, whether they realize it or not, are boosting the stock market and boosting the economy overall. And when I say the economy, I'm talking about the cycle, because the cycle is, impacts every part of the economy. It's a really interesting thing. I know it seems obvious, but uh, it's fun to really look into each component of it. People stimulating the economy, or analysts' common sense anticipation of that spending, boosts the economy, and we are going into a holiday season. That is why you are hearing Christmas music everywhere, <laughs> and holiday music everywhere, because, or winter music everywhere, because people want you to go out and buy things. In fact, you'll hear that everywhere, and it's not only just for stores, it's for advertisements, for selling things, for boosting ratings, for everything. The day after Thanksgiving is when you start to hear ads for Christmas things, Christmas music all the time, even sometimes before Thanksgiving. In fact, if you listen to uh, the world's greatest radio station, WGN, which stands for World's Greatest Newspaper, uh, you will hear now that they are airing uh, holiday jingles, Christmas and uh, holiday jingles, now. And it's, they started doing it yesterday, November 27th, that was the day after Thanksgiving. It's now Saturday, November 28th. And if you're a jingle nerd, uh, those the cuts that I've heard so far that are from holiday packages, it's a composite as per usual. It is uh, from First Step Cut 16, Nothing But Class Cut 3, Nothing But Class Cut 4, and Variety Pack Cut 3. They did something really cool with Variety pa- I know this is, I'm going on so many tangents this episode, but with Variety Pack Cut 3, and again, this is really for the jingle nerds, what they did was they have sort of a standard cut, but they also have uh, an alternate mix or the full mix of that cut, which includes a phrase about the holidays, and then they put um, jingle bell sound effects under it so they can use it as both as a normal sort of nighttime jingle or they can transform it by adding a lyrical element and putting sound effects under it into a holiday jingle, which is smart because it saves money even though it's the same jingle. Back to Miss Yellen and the appointment of her to this position. The appointment of her is not one that's only objectively smart, not only objectively smart, but because of her, uh, you know, wide-ranging experience on the economy. But it's also politically smart because, as The Economist puts it, Janet Yellen is, quote, something for everyone. And by everyone, The Economist means the 535 members of the United States Congress 
the Senate of which is controlled by Republicans. The article, which you can find at j-dorty.com slash 139, says no economist is more qualified than Ms. Yellen, a former head of the Federal Reserve and a respected academic for the job. Perhaps more important, however, and I'm quoting the article, for what is a political role as much as an economic one, people from the progressive left to the conservative right can see something to liken her. In today's political configuration, that matters. Mr. Biden must tame a split in the Democratic Party between run-of-the-mill centrists and tear-it-down millennial socialists. That's a very, very, very good way to put it. They go on to say, and before she becomes Treasury Secretary, Ms. Yellen must be confirmed by the Senate, which Republicans currently control. End quote. Essentially, centrists and Wall Street insiders love Yellen, and political far-righties and far-lefties like Yellen. But none of that matters unless you vote, and Democrats can have the easy vote uh, because Biden is a Democrat, he's putting her in, and uh, so they'll almost automatically go and vote just for the benefit of the party and for the future of uh, their legislative agenda, they're going to vote most likely in totality in favor for her. And then Republicans, if they like her enough, which I assume they will, I think they will put her in that position once she goes through the whole uh, confirmation process, I think it'll all go well. As that uh, same Economist uh, article points out, if Mr. Biden were to have selected the self-proclaimed Democratic Socialist and free market critic Senator Elizabeth Warren for Treasury Secretary, someone who is very, very uh, politically left, or very, just not even, even if you take the left out of it, you just say out of center, uh, the markets would probably do one of these. And uh, you obviously don't want that to start out your administration um, which is why he picked someone who is not controversial or unknown. She is uncontroversial and she is known. In fact, she is so not controversial and so known that President Trump reportedly considered her, not for Treasury Secretary, but for a Federal Reserve Chair of which she held previously. He reportedly denied her reappointment of that position, not only because he thought his advisors might thought it might be politically wise to stack the Fed with his own new people, but also because of her height. An article from November 27th, 2018 about the possibility of Janet Yellen being reappointed to a position as Fed chair from the Washington Post reads, Trump consider reappointing Yellen to the Post, and of course they're referring to her position as Fed chair, and she impressed him greatly, and I'm quoting the article here, during an interview according to people briefed on their encounter. But advisors steered him away from renominating her, telling him that he should have his own person for the job, which makes sense, in a way. The president also appeared hung up on Yellen's height. He told aides on the National Economic Council on several occasions that the five-foot-tall economist was not tall enough to lead the central bank, quizzing them on whether they agreed, current and former officials said. This is one of the countless reasons I am glad this man will not be president, after January 2020. Okay, time for a break. Uh, you're listening to the Jay Doherty Podcast. Today's jingle commercials in our continuing segment total 92 seconds. They come from Barracuda, which is a car company, Bank of America, of course, a bank. It's for their AmeriCard. And then also Gordon's Jewelers, which is a jewelry company. They total 92 seconds, 21 seconds, 56 seconds, and 15 seconds is the divide in the partition of their times. You'll hear a promo about what's coming up next, and then you will hear the 92-second jingle compilation here on the J. Doherty Podcast, which is serviced 
promoted, and distributed by the JD Media Network. COVID-19, the coronavirus. TJDP coverage continues next. On the Jay Dorney Podcast, TJDP. I sure like the convenience of my Bank AmeriCard. Here they were having a sale, and there I was without any cash. I had my Bank AmeriCard, so when the girl asked what I wanted, that, I said, and two of those, and charge it. Fine, she said. Boy, did I get a bargain. Thanks to my Bank AmeriCard. Savings you've been looking for Gordon's Quality Jewelry Store Welcome back, everyone. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast. It is currently 6.17 p.m. as we come back on the air. Thank you very much for being here. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast on the JD Media Network. Your existence and listening to this uh, podcast is very much appreciated. I thank you very much for uh, being here for this episode. The numbers from the Coronavirus Resource Center from the Johns Hopkins University uh, and Medicine Coronavirus Resource Center 62,084,566 global cases, 1.5 million deaths almost, 265,000 deaths in the United States, 171,000 in Brazil, 136,000 in India, 104,000 in Mexico. State level on the United States, 34,514 deaths from New York. Those are the uh, highest death counts in the U.S. Uh, states on, in terms of states uh, wide and also it is the highest the state with the highest amount of deaths you can read the uh, look at the full data map uh, over at the website which will forward you to a link to the Johns Hopkins uh, site j-doherty.com slash 139 another sad and bad U.S. milestone hit 13 million coronavirus cases Joe Murphy of NBC News writes that the U.S. reached 13 million diagnosed cases of COVID-19 Last Friday, it was a fourth. It was the fourth such marker the country has counted in November, which has th- seen 3.8 million cases of the coronavirus. The U.S. is on a pace to tally more than 4 million cases this month alone, 
more than doubling the previous record of 1.9 million cases set in October. More than 264,000 people in the U.S. have died of the disease, according to NBC News' count. The U.S. crossed the 12 million case threshold less than a week ago on November 21st. To put that in perspective, Marissa uh, Iadi, I believe is how you say her name, and Hannah Knowles of the Washington Post wrote an article titled, In Nine States, At Least One in 1,000 People Have Died of Coronavirus-Linked Case uh, Causes. They write that as daily COVID-19 deaths climb to levels not seen since the early pandemic, nine states have hit one grim marker, more than one in every 1,000 people dead of the coronavirus-related cases. The list reflects the far-reaching toll of the crisis, spanning early hotspots, southern states hit hard in the summer, and rural parts of the country with increasingly strained hospitals, and it is growing. On Friday, South Dakota became the largest state to see at least one COVID-19 death for every 1,000 residents, joining New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Louisiana, Rhode Island, Mississippi, and North Dakota. The country also surpassed 13 million known coronavirus cases during a holiday season, appended by the pandemic. Even with travel significantly down from last year, millions went through airport checkpoints in the days leading up to Thanksgiving, and governors on Friday urged people not to let down their guard amid Black Friday shopping. All this uh, growth happens while the vaccine develops, not by itself, of course, with the help of companies like AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Moderna. Those are sort of the uh, people who have been, the companies that have been making news as of recent. In fact, you may remember last week on episode number 138 of TJDP, we talked about vaccine manufacturers and what companies have a role in this vaccine. Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, and Johnson & Johnson uh, were the players, and the field seemed to have narrowed down to Pfizer and Moderna as they were the only ones making news at that point. But AstraZeneca made a brief appearance in the headlines this week. CNBC says the data from them, though, according to Oxford and the World Health Organization, say that more data is needed on AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine trials in order to really have confidence in it. The Regis Professor of Medicine at Oxford University told CNBC that more data will be needed from AstraZeneca's coronavirus vaccine trials to determine its safety and efficacy. Kate O'Brien, WHO's Director of Immunization, Vaccines, and Biologicals, agreed with Bell earlier on Friday, saying that there's only, quote, a limited amount that can be said in a press release. Shares of AstraZeneca dipped this week after the company announced interim results from its COVID-19 vaccine trials on Monday. Perhaps they released this news just to avoid the pain of irrelevance and to let the world know that they were still working on the vaccine's development. According to Pfizer, Moderna, and the CDC, vaccine development overall is going very well. There are still strong numbers and that are being reported, and distribution is supposedly going to be ready for later this year or early next year. The one question that we've been talking about on this podcast is, how will the government, the military, and soon the public get this vaccine distributed? Who will get it first? Medical workers seem to be at the top of that chain right now. It's not the first risk that that population is taking. You may remember back when uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the head of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, said the following about distribution on the BBC a while back. The challenge that was once distant is now approaching. We will know whether a vaccine is safe and effective by the end of November, the beginning of December. The question is, once you have a safe and effective vaccine or more than one, how can you get it to the people who need it as quickly as possible? So the amount of doses that will be available in December 
will not certainly be enough to vaccinate everybody. You'll have to wait several months into 2021. Exactly. And that's sort of the thing that uh, governments are going to have to deal with. Who and how do the vaccines get distributed? Uh, Fauci then predicted what Politico is now writing about and how uh, that subject is how uh, and what others will likely soon write about uh, in the future. The challenge of distribution. This was on the BBC a few weeks ago and continuing his monologue about uh, the vaccine development and distribution. Fauci said this about that issue. But what will happen is that there has been a prioritization set so that individuals such as healthcare workers will very likely get first shot at it, as will then likely people who are in the category of being at an increased risk for complications. That could start by the end of this year, the beginning January, February, March of next year. But when you talk about vaccinating a substantial proportion of the population so that you can have a significant impact on the dynamics of the outbreak, that very likely will not be into the second or third quarter of the year. Also in Politico, an interesting article about Canada, uh, which we're going to talk about in a second. But before we get to that, Ryan Heath and Carmen Pawn wrote an article in Politico about what they call the quote-unquote thorny question that world leaders are facing around the world, how to distribute this vaccine. They write, Congratulations, world leaders. You're on the cusp of the once unthinkable a game-changing coronavirus vaccine developed with record speed. But you have yet to face the truly hard part, at least politically, deciding who gets it. In theory, everyone in the world who wants it should eventually be able to get immunized, but for much of 2021, the demand for the coronavirus vaccine will outstrip supply, preventing a massive dilemma for governments which must decide who gets the vaccine first or early and who must wait. The U.S. federal government's world-leading Operation Warp Speed, which you heard Trump talk about in, uh the second Biden-Trump debate, uh, plans to distribute 6.4 million doses of a Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine within 24 hours of regulatory clearance. Pfizer is a U.S. company, and they're working with BioNTech, which is a German company, uh, to develop this entire thing. We talked about that to great lengths on uh, the previous episode of this podcast. But even this initial effort to immunize frontline healthcare workers risks wasted doses, and that's just step one in the country. This article is actually really well written and uh, does a breakdown of every of almost every single major country and goes through the plans and also they, they do one uh, overall for the European Union as well. Uh, and they go through and talk about what the plan for distribution is around the world. And uh, going off of what I teased earlier, an interesting article about Canada specifically. The country may be able to approve uh, a vaccine this month. That's what they're teasing and potentially before the United States, but they don't have the capacity to manufacture it. They have the knowledge, they have the brains, but they don't have the capacity to manufacture it. That's the classic Canadian story. I anticipate hearing, all, and that's, of course, sarcasm, much respect to Canada and Canadians, especially those who listen to this podcast. Uh, I anticipate hearing lots more about the vaccine in the coming days. We'll see exactly what happens. We'll have live coverage, lots of coverage, I should say, 24 hours a day, seven days a week uh, on thedohertyfiles.com, and then also once a week on the J. Doherty podcast, which you can hear on the JD Media Network and on iTunes, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Stitcher Radio, wherever you get your podcasts. Audio clips for this podcast came from CTV News, The Telegraph, CBS News, ABC News, NBC News, The White House, 
MSNBC, C-SPAN, Fox News, The Washington Post, and other trusted sources of the JD Media Network. Music is from Nia. The complete credit and link to hear the full song, which you hear playing in the background now, can be found at j-doherty.com slash 139. The phone number for this podcast is 312-625-8492. You can receive emails and newsletter updates at j-shorty.com slash newsletter. Read and listen to show notes and episode highlights at j-shorty.com. Clips and highlights at the dohertyfiles.com. This has been a JD Media Network production. Thank you so much for listening. JDP! The JD Media Network.